Welcome back to another episode of the Treat Addiction Save Lives podcast. Until someone kicks me out of the sound booth, I am still your host, Zach Caruso. And as always, I want to start by extending a sincere thank you for tuning in and hanging out with us for another awesome episode. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with a very cool guest and a fellow New Jersey native, Dr. Nicole Labor. Dr. Labor graduated from Penn State University with a bachelor's in biobehavioral health and attended Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine, where she earned her D.O., did a residency in family medicine, which took place in Buffalo, New York, and followed that by a fellowship in addiction medicine at Marworth through Geisinger. She started her addiction career by working with SUMA in Akron, Ohio at the Ignatia Hall Detox Unit, essentially following in the footsteps of Dr. Bob Smith, uh, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. While in Akron, the birthplace of AA, Dr. Labor cultivated relationships with community treatment centers all over Northeast Ohio, and she's known for her work within the community to reduce the stigma of addiction and provide evidence-based care to patients with substance use disorder. She currently works as medical director of several substance use disorder and behavioral health facilities, and she's written a best-selling book titled The Addictaholic Deconstructed, an irreverently quick and dirty education by a doctor who says fuck a lot. Hey, there's one for the FCC. And she also co-wrote a companion workbook that goes along with that. In addition to her addiction treatment work, she has also herself been in abstinence-based recovery since 2005. Uh, Dr. Labor was a blast to chat with and has such an honest and straightforward approach to addiction treatment and recovery. So let's dive in here, sit back, and enjoy our discussion with Dr. Nicole Labor. I would love to learn a little bit more about you. So can you tell me um, what... What was your path to addiction medicine? You know, were you always interested in medicine or, or um, what led you to this particular field? Um, so when I was growing up, um, my father basically said, well, when you grow up, are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer? <laughs> um, so and I thought an engineer was the person that drove the train. Um, so, and there's a lot of lawyers in my family. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to be a doctor because I'm going to help people and um so yeah so ever since i was really little it was just kind of set in my head that i was going to go i was going to be a physician um and, and that was popular i mean even in high school i remember like i would have friends say this is my friend she's going to be a doctor um you know and i would hand out medical advice in high school and um you know throughout my youth uh so then um i personally developed uh substance use disorder um probably you know i mean again we we all know it starts in adolescence so um that was probably where it really started but my use really escalated through college um and even into medical school um i was using uh heroin and um managed to get uh, drinking a lot a lot of alcohol but um the heroin's probably what really kind of put me in the position of needing some help. So um, I made it through almost my third year of medical school before I crashed and burned and couldn't do it anymore. And, you know, through the powers that be, the grace of God, whatever you want to call it, uh, I wound up in rehab and um, I went to rehab at Marworth Treatment Center in Pennsylvania, guys through Geisinger. Um, and, you know, uh, Dr. Dave Withers and Margaret Jarvis were the main treatment providers there. We just talked and, to Dr. Jarvis earlier this week. Yeah. Yeah. So she was the doctor that treated me. Um, 
And I went back to, they let the school allow me to continue rematriculate into my third year. Uh, so I finished medical school, um, kind of just, I feel like everybody that's in early recovery with this idea that like, oh, I get it now. So I'm going to be uh, an addiction specialist. Um, so when I was making the decision about like what to do, you know, it was, am I going to do psychiatry? Am I going to do family medicine? Am I going to do an addiction medicine? Um, and Marworth, where I had gone to treatment, had just started an addiction medicine fellowship. So they were taking primary care providers, uh, you know, board board trained providers. So I wound up doing a residency in family medicine up in Buffalo and uh, with the intention of applying for the fellowship at Marworth. So that was kind of, you know, so pretty much once I got out of rehab, it was like, well, that's this is what I'm going to do. It, it worked out very well because as it turns out, I don't really have a personality that does well with like patient satisfaction surveys. So to do something, you know, in a field where people, if they don't appreciate, they at least tolerate, uh, you know, like a, a blunt and, um, you know, I don't want to say non-compassionate approach, but sometimes I feel that way. Um, so, yeah, so I wound up doing the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at Marworth. I think it was like the 18th or 19th fellowship in the country or something, or, or 11th maybe. I mean, it was pretty new. Um, so I did that. And then um, when I was looking for jobs, you know, I was interviewing kind of all over the country because at that time there weren't very many specialists and a lot of places were really trying to expand their addiction programs. So they were looking for medical directors. Um, and as much as my ego wanted to, you know, feel like I was capable of starting and growing huge programs for huge health systems, that really, you know, probably was not the case. So, um, when I interviewed in Akron at SUMA, St. Thomas, um, it was really more like a practice and it, like, I'm not going to Akron. Um, but when I was there, you know, I realized that was the birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was where Dr. Bob treated and Sister Ignatia treated the first patients, like that actual hospital, that actual detox unit. Um, so there was a lot of rich history for people in recovery there. Um, and then there was a well-defined job, you know, there, they had already had a detox unit. They were expanding their outpatient MAT programming. They were looking to do consultation services. So all of the things that I have been learning about in fellowship, they were offering. So I took that job and that's where I landed. I wanted to ask you, actually, you, you led right into it, but I, I wanted to ask um, that experience there, you know, being an Akron at that, at that detox unit, the, and, you know, you talked about it's the, you know, the founding place of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, did that experience, did that location, the geography, did those things um, impact you? Did they influence you? And if so, how, you know, how and in what ways? I mean, I, I don't know how it could not impact you, you know, in this field. Like I, I there, it's just such a deep and rich history. And there's so many people in this area that are, you know, connected um, to that history. And so, yeah, I mean, even just like, when, you know, annually they have Founders Day at, you know, Akron University, there are buses that come to the hospital where, you know, I'm working. And so, um, yeah, I feel like that's a pretty, it's a pretty profound experience to just be a part of that. Um, 
in general, you know, just like bathing in that history. I want to backtrack for a second because I wanted to ask, you said for the first, I believe you said three years of your uh, medical school career, um, you were dealing with substance use. Uh, I would love to hear what that experience was like um, from from your memory of it. You know, did it make things difficult? Um, did it make things feel easier? What was your perception at the time and what was your kind of retrospective uh, look at that? Zach, I would love to hear my experience during that time too. I, I you know, that period of my life was such a whirlwind. Um, you know, I know that I, a big part of the escalation of my use had to do with a relationship I was in, which was kind of a long distance relationship. Um, so I very clearly remember being very focused and, fi you know, fixated on that um, <clears throat> more so than anything I was doing in terms of learning. Um, I mean, we all know like how you study is how you take the test, which is how you would pass it. You know what I mean? So obviously if I was using all the time, that's how I was studying. And then that's how I was taking the tests. And, you know, I think the reason that the school had to sort of let me rematriculate as third year instead of starting all over was because I had managed to pass the board exams up to that point. Um, don't you you couldn't ask me any of the questions once I got cleaned and had me pass it again um so years three and four were totally like relearning everything from the ground up but I I don't remember it being particularly difficult the first two years other than obviously medical school is very difficult but like it wasn't my use wasn't really impacting uh I think that the difficulty of it, but it, it you know, I, I really very much, I had a chip on my shoulder. Uh, I really did just in general, um, you know, till I got into recovery. And I feel like that played a role in kind of my nonchalance and my, you know, I, I functioned under that pre uh, the premise of, you know, what do you call the person who graduates last in medical school, you know, doctor. Like, I don't, I didn't care about getting good grades. I just cared about passing. Um, so I would say that I wasn't, you know, putting forth this monster effort. Um, and then, you know, we were, everybody kind of parties every weekend. Um, and then I think, you know, you take a big test every week and then you kind of go out and you get wasted. And there was a handful of us, I think, that were kind of the, the you know after hours you know gonna every weekend gonna go till we're broken out of everything and you know I don't know that any of them wound up having significant problems like I did um but yeah that was definitely pretty apparent and that was kind of what I was living for like I was looking forward to those you know opportunities to just go out and get wasted and not even really acknowledging that throughout the week I was also using just not to the point of, you know, oblivion. Right. You know, you, you made a comment earlier and it, it stuck in my head. You said you might have a, a blunt. You said, I don't want to call it uh, uncompassion, um, but maybe it's because I'm from New Jersey. I don't know. I feel at home with that. Are you really? What part of New Jersey? North Bergen County. Okay, I'm South Salem County. Oh, so that's not really Jersey. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We're two different states. We really are. For anyone really listening, are. there is a debate over uh, North and South, and we're very different people. Uh, but I, I think that that is a really um, kind of an important approach sometimes to have that that kind of tough love 
um, for, for people that need it in those circumstances. One of the things that I just thought was really cool was you wrote a book. It's called The Addictaholic Deconstructed, an irreverently quick and dirty education by a doctor who says, I won't say the word, I'll let you say it, a lot. Um, but I would like to hear what inspired this book. What is this about? What, you know, um, what was the inception of it? And tell us a little bit about what it, what it's all about. So when I first started working, um, you know, I was working for SUMA health system. So I was involved with a lot of the graduate medical education departments and, um, you know, Neo, like Neomed. And, and so as I had come on, I was like one of only two addiction providers. So they started asking me if I would, you know, do lectures and educate and stuff. And so, but they would, they would give me a topic. They would say, Hey, can you come talk about stimulants or can you come talk about benzos or whatever? And I would go and I would do a little, you know, a, a talk about it. But then at the end, when people were asking questions, what came, what became more and more apparent was that people really didn't understand the disease process, like the, the reward system, the dopamine, you know, molecules, the way that the brain is impacted by addiction and the difference really between people who suffer from truly suffer from the disease versus just kind of abuse drugs and so i created a lecture based i will i will give 100 percent credit to dr kevin mccauley um you know in his pleasure unwoven series and all of his lectures i i basically stole a ton of his material um and i I, I dumbed it down to something that I could really understand and then regurgitated it to my audiences. Um, and it was really well received. And so, you know, what became clear was that one of my strengths was the ability to communicate and articulate complicated subjects in a non-complicated way. And so that or that addiction 101 lecture really just kind of blew up and I started getting asked to give it all the time. Um I was going all over the state, I was going into um Pennsylvania, I was going into New York, I was doing this lecture a lot. Um and people were recording it and putting it on YouTube. Um, so it built up my reputation for sure. Um, but I was starting to get like a little bit, I was booking out like eight, nine months a year in advance for this lecture, for these lectures, because I obviously I'm still working. I'm seeing patients, so I can't just stop doing that. So, nice. um, I decided to basically take that lecture and write it down. Um, and, you know, expand on it in the ways that I never have time to, because I'm always limited to like one hour or two hours. So I could give more examples. I could add in, you know, pieces and parts of my story. Um, I could use some anecdotes from my patients um, and my experience treating. Um, and then the idea was to, you know, to be able to have that accessible to not only people that suffer from substance use disorder, but their families, you know, because they're the ones that always seem to benefit the most from the, t from the lecture, from the talk was like, I get it now. I, you know, I'm so much less angry at my family member or whatever. So that was kind of the idea behind writing that book was really just to make less work for myself overall. <laughs> um, and then I just modified my Addiction 101 lecture to sort of mirror the book so that, you know, that a lot of the illustrations, the color schemes, things like that, they kind of go together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was it. It took me 90 days to write that book. Um, 
because it was just basically dictating my lecture and then editing and adding examples and things like that. That's really cool. Um, you know, it, we're, we're talking during uh, National Addiction Treatment Week. This episode is going to be up. And um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is stigma. We, we talk about the fact that it can be a barrier for a lot of people to get the treatment that they need. Um, they can feel ashamed. They can feel like they're not worthy. Uh, from your perspective, um, what kind of things do you see around stigma right now? What are some of the issues that you think need to be addressed in terms of stigma? Um, and what can clinicians and care providers do to start to combat that a little bit? I, well, I think that a huge piece of why I do what I do, like in terms of the educating and even the book was really to try and help eliminate the stigma by sort of giving a face to the disease process, right? I'm going, your brain is broken. That's not your fault, right? If you have a brain tumor and you act like an idiot, you know, nobody's going to be like, oh, you're a bad person, but you have a brain disease called addiction and you act like an idiot. Everybody's got opinions about it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that was kind of my contribution to trying to eliminate stigma and working through stigma. Um, and I think that we, you know, as far as what's happening now, I, I continue to see sort of the same patterns just around different things. Um, when I first started 15 years ago, you know, I was, a lot of my education and stigma reduction was around MAT and getting medication, you know, to be more widely accepted. Um, by people in general. And I think that we've come a long way with that and, and it really is, um, but there's still that phenomenon of people having opinions about other people's treatments and lives that I am just baffled by. Like I, I, I as a family medicine practitioner, I've never had a family member call me up and say, how long is my mother gonna be on this thyroid medicine? Isn't she gonna produce her own thyroid hormone at some point? Like, why does she have to be dependent on this? And can she just change her diet? And, you know, I, I, never, no, cause nobody cares, right? But it, even people who work in the field of addiction, people who have histories of addiction themselves, you know, I inevitably the question, no matter where I give this talk, no matter what I do, there is always the question at the end, how long do you think people should be on buprenorphine or medication assisted treatment? What is kind of a timeline that you think is appropriate for people? And I'm like, I, however long they need it. I mean, I don't know why you care. What difference does it make? You, you know, unless you're on and you're asking for yourself, let's have a private conversation. We can talk about what your specific situation looks like. But if you're asking for a generalization, like that's that's insane. That's like asking how long people are going to be on blood pressure medicine or diabetic medication. You know, some of them get off of it. Some of them do manage to change lifestyle and, and other factors and really get those disease processes under control without medicine, but others don't. So I, I just, but, but yet nobody's asking me that. How long are people in blood pressure medicine? How long do they have to take, you know, metformin or whatever? Um, so I think that that's kind of an area that we need to um, work on. Um, I also think though, I mean, not for nothing, but, you know, Western medicine is, well, I'm, this that's a different podcast, I think. But, um, you know, we do have a tendency to really push chemical solutions um, for everything. And um, I, I honestly, I'm not entirely sure that that push has been that helpful for stigma um, because I think just so many people really look at medication as enab enabling or like, you know, just kind of allowing um, 
people to continue to use substances and not have to look at their issues and not have to look at the underlying problems and, blah, and not have to develop coping skills and whatever. And, and to some degree, that's true. I mean, there's, there is a piece of that that's kind of accurate, but, um, but again, overall, we, things need to be very individualized and we really need to look at individual patients. So, but I do think that this push to like, oh, medicine for everything, you know, oh, you have uh, methamphetamine use disorder, let's give you some amphetamines or, oh, you have, you know, whatever, whatever substance is your drug of choice, there must be a drug out there that we can give you to try and help you, you know, work through that. Um, while that may be the correct course of action, you know, medically, I, I don't, I don't actually have an opinion on that one way or the other, whether it, it's right or wrong. Um, I, I do think that that sort of push has uh, on one hand uh, helped the stigma and on the other hand, probably hurt it. So um I think, you know, pushing chemical solutions for chemical problems um, can be problematic. Uh, but I still think that people don't need to have opinions if it's not themselves. Uh, and that's where some of the stigma lies. Now, I, I've had lots of patients come to me and say that they've been in a hospital or they've been at a doctor's office and they feel that they've been treated poorly because of their addiction. Um, and I think that probably... A lot of the time that is true, but I think a lot of the time too, that's, you know, uh, um, us looking, projecting, you know, uh, if there's uh, any elements of shame and guilt that someone's still kind of holding on to, there is a tendency to sort of promote or project that onto other people. So I'm not sure how, I, I don't know what the actual statistic or what the actual amount of, you know, stigma in, impacting healthcare would be at this point. I'm curious too. Uh, we've talked to a couple other providers this week, and they've talked about in, you know, in those uh, in those settings where sometimes. Um, someone who is in need of treatment feels uh, that maybe they just need a connection with someone. Some doctors say they need to feel like they're, uh, you know, that they still have worth and, and that someone cares. Um, in, in your experience, um, talking about the stigma and kind of that combination of, of those internalized feelings that people may be feeling um, and some of the stigma coming from the care provider side, what do you think in those scenarios is the most important thing to um, kind of lead someone or, or, or show them the path from where they are to uh, recovery and, and treatment and show them that it's a, you know, there is success in this and that it is possible. What do you think people kind of need to get to that place? Are we talking about like people who have substance use disorder? Or are we talking about providers that work with them? I guess really both. What would you say on both sides? The the providers, what do they need to keep in mind when they're dealing with these types of patients? And you know, what do you think that patients need um, from the providers or, or within themselves? You know, what does it really take to find that path to recovery and know that it's possible? Because it feels like a lot of people think that uh, it's either not worth trying or that, you know, recovery is not a possibility. And, and, you know, on the other side, we've heard doctors say um, sometimes in their medical career, through residency and all they're they're almost told you know these types of patients uh you're not going to want to deal with them they're they're this they're that um and they come to addiction medicine later so you know what is it what do you think it takes to find that middle ground for everyone to come together and and uh know it's treatment is uh you know a, a possible thing for success and and uh the proper way to kind of lead them to that recovery so I, with with patients with my patients um i really take a very I don't know. I, I try to be very objective with them. And, and again, it, this is individual. Like, so you really have to 
manage based on where they are emotionally and mentally and where they are in their recovery because some need a little bit more handholding and coddling and others you know really need to just have the mirror held up to them and say like you need to take a good long look at this um but you know i i'll have patients come in as i you know i fucked up i used I used this weekend and like, you know, I'm going to get my PO is going to blah, blah, blah. I feel so stupid. You know, and I was, I'm like, oh, so you're a diabetic who ate a cookie. Come on, dude. Like, give yourself a break. You you have an illness. You succumbed. You had some symptoms. Like, we can move on. You know, if you want to sit and dwell on it, go ahead. But, you know, that's not going to do you any good. Like, it, it is what it is. We, we have, you have an illness. I have an illness. We have an illness. And you know, we're either treating it or we're succumbing to it. And so it requires a lot of effort to constantly be treating it. And everybody has, you know, uh, the right to just relax and default to the shittiness every once in a while. I mean, there it's that's life. Nobody's nobody's going to be perfect. So most of the time, that's kind of the the approach. You know, sometimes it's it's a really like a come to Jesus. Like, why why are you even here? Why are you seeing me? Because you're not you're not doing anything. You don't want to get well based on your behaviors. You're not doing anything that says to me that you're trying to get well. So, you know, if you're just trying to get out of trouble, there's a whole different group of people that can help you with that. Like, I'm a physician. My job's to try and help you get well. So with patients, that's really what it is. And, and you know, I, I haven't had a whole lot of bad luck with that. I, I tend to be cynical. I tend to be sarcastic. I tend to be, you know, almost mean or rude at times um, in, in, again, that really sarcastic, joking way. Um, and most people respond pretty well to that, at least my patients do. Um, as far as providers go... I think just really that education, like, I don't think they get it. They, they want just stop using, just stop using, you know, just, you know, be strong, use willpower again, without understanding the mechanism of willpower in the brain and like where that occurs and not understanding that, you know, you know, when we're talking about reward, we're talking about neurotransmitters, you know, it's really not in the best interest to be providing huge amounts of rewarding neurotransmitters in one form when we're trying to escape another form, right? So <clears throat> dumping Xanax on everybody who's anxious because they're trying to give up alcohol or, you know, opiates is probably not a great plan. Um, but helping them just understand why, you know, why that is. And then I think, I think one of the things that we all need to do, providers, patients themselves, um, all of us need to stop holding the bar so low for people with substance use disorder. We have such a low expectation of these people. And to me, that feels, I don't mean, it feels not right and it feels contradictory to what we're trying to say like you're just normal people with an illness and the illness impacts you but yet we're not going to expect anything of you other than to just stop using right or or just reduce harm or whatever and and then you know and people stop using and they get clean and oh you haven't used for a year 30 days 60 days and we applaud and we should because those are really hard things to do it's very very hard to stop using so those Feats deserve applause. However, I don't know why we end it there. I don't know why the bar is held so low. Because if you're not a person with substance use disorder, 
We're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are your dreams? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? And if you have substance use disorder, we're like, just don't use no matter what. Oh, good job. You know, and like, it, we're almost afraid to like ask them what kind of goals they have. Oh, I don't want to put pressure on them because if they fail, they're going to go use. Like we suddenly take responsibility for their relapse by having an expectation <clears throat> that they can want more out of life than just not to use, you know what I mean? Oh, I don't want to take, I don't want to suggest that they give up smoking cigarettes or give up their monster energy drinks because that's all they have left right now. Like, well, no, no, that's not, you know, we, they still need to know that the impact on their health of those things is not good and that they can do better for themselves. They can physically feel better by eating well and moving more and doing all the things that we should be encouraging other disease processes patients to do to get well. And so, and to reach for more, you know, and, um, you know, I think to some degree, some of us, the physicians and other providers that, you know, are in recovery ourselves, counselors, you know, people who have gone on to achieve something beyond just not using, you know, provide a little bit of a hoop shot for some of the patients because they think, oh, well, I can do that too. You know, if they can do that, I can do that. But I think we just need maybe more of that. Um and, and maybe just recognizing accomplishments of people in recovery beyond just being in recovery, um, which again is applaudable and noteworthy, but I just feel like it's holding the bar too low. You seem to have such a kind of a comprehensive and holistic look at the treatment process and recovery process. Um, what's been what's been an experience that really stuck out in your mind, something positive, a success story? What's one thing that kind of holds a place in your brain over the years that was, um, you know, really impactful? I mean, there. so I couldn't pinpoint one, but I could, I could sort of cluster all of them into this one type of experience, you know, where I, I do, I feel like it's, you're, you're treating people, you're grinding it out, you're doing, you know, it, it's exhausting and you're feeling kind of like, you know, even though I know I'm not responsible for other people getting well, um, you know, there's still a piece that's kind of like, am I really making an impact? And then all of a sudden, like always when you're right on the edge, that burnout place of that place of, you know, I don't know if this is really worth doing. There's an email or someone shows up and says, you saved my life. You are the reason or one of the reasons or were impactful in my getting well and now I have a year clean or I have six months clean for the first time in 30 years or you know um or I'll I'll be somewhere um and somebody will say hey Dr. Labor you probably don't remember me but you saw me on detox and you basically told me I was throwing my future away if I kept you know taking Xanax and I thought you were such a bitch and I am so grateful for you now and I have seven years and, you know, stuff like that. Like those, those are the things that really come back and, and make it worth doing um, because, because, you know, in those circumstances, it's not just like, oh, you were having a heart, like you were overdosing and I gave you Narcan or you were having a heart attack and I gave you, you know, morphine in the hospital and saved you from that heart attack. It's like these people have, changed their lives like completely um, because of something that, or at least in part because of something I said or did, you know, and that makes it feel um, like the work that I do is impactful in the world. Um, so 
I couldn't possibly pinpoint one specific patient or circumstance, but kind of that pattern happens over and over and over throughout the years. That's amazing. I, I have one more question to close this out here, and that would be if if everyone that listened to this episode only takes one thing away during National Addiction Treatment Week, um, the, the Spark Notes, TLDR, Too Long Didn't Read, summary version of, of your talk here today, what would you like clinicians and providers to take away and um, kind of bring to their own practice and bring to their own patients? I would like to say if you're a provider, not an addiction provider, I would really like you to either learn as much as you can about the disease process before you proceed with any advice or treatment or defer to somebody that knows better. Because I I do feel like providers have a tendency, oh, I'm not a card <clears throat> I'm not a cardiologist, so I'm gonna refer you to a cardiologist because I don't know enough about how to treat that. But with addiction, there's a lot of tendency to be like, oh, well, just don't use and here's some Xanax or here's some, you know, without kind of really understanding the, the cognitive impacts um, of that. So please try to learn the baseline uh, treatment modalities, um, try to understand it and try to have some relationships with providers that do really get it. Um, that would be very helpful for, you know, those of us that, that do this all the time. Um, but mostly just like, these are just people with a disease. These are just people with a disease that is truly no different than cancer or diabetes or high blood pressure or any other chronic disease process, you know, um, and is it impacted by their choices to a lot of, sure, absolutely. So are all of those other diseases that I just named. So chronic disease in this country and probably worldwide, but, you know, is impacted by our choices and our decisions and our daily lifestyles and addiction is no different. So let's treat it that way. You know, let's, let's really integrate it into the rest of the disease clubs so that we can um, have meaningful impact across the board. Dr. Labor, a fellow New Jersey native, it's been awesome talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Sure, thank you. What a great talk. We really hope we can convince Dr. Labor to stop back soon for another interview with us. We sure hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to check out our show notes to learn more about Dr. Labor, her book, The Addictaholic Deconstructed, and everything else that she's got going on. We've still got plenty more great stuff coming during this year's Treatment Week from now through the 22nd. Are you using the hashtag Treatment Week to stay up to date with everything? You should be. Lots of great interviews, information, educational resources. Make sure you check it out. And be sure to visit TreatAddictionSaveLives.org to learn more and get involved now. We will catch you in the next episode. Until then, treat addiction, save lives. 